This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. On the rainy afternoon of February 1, 1968, two young African-American men stepped out from the back of a city garbage truck and onto a suburban Memphis street. Here in the truck, pull up in front of her home, a white woman watched absentmindedly from her kitchen window as they loaded the trash inside the giant compactor. Suddenly, she was startled to attention by the sound of screams and banging from outside, and she watched in horror as the two men First one and then the other were pulled into the compactor and crushed to death in front of her eyes. It looked like the big thing just swallowed them, she would say in an interview with authorities later that night. The two men, Robert Walker, 29, and Echol Cole, 35, were part of an unseen generation of African-American men who'd come to Memphis in search of work. Their hope was that Memphis would provide a different sort of life, a better sort of life than what they had found elsewhere in the South. When they arrived in Memphis, however, most of these men found their conditions little changed. The jobs available to African-American men were the most difficult and physically demanding. Storm and drainage work, street and asphalt repair and trash pickup, and most of these jobs pay started at $1.27 an hour, but some paid as little as 65 cents an hour. Such was the lot of Robert Walker and Echo Cole, and also of the nearly 1,500 other men who worked alongside them in the city's sanitation department. On an average morning, and hot or in cold, these men would wake before dawn and walk or catch a ride to the, lot, to the lot where the city's garbage trucks were parked. And then, of course, white supervisors would slide behind the wheel of the truck, and the African-American men would hang out to the sides, or in the event of rain or snow, sat, sit in the back with the trash. Stopping in front of homes, they'd climb out and begin to pick up the bins of trash. These bins, though, usually didn't have lids, and they sat open in all conditions and were filled with liquefying, rotting trash. Shouldering the bins, water and filth would spill over the sides and through holes in the bottom and drip into their hair and down their backs as they would empty them into the back of the truck. And at the end of the day, because the sanitation department provided neither uniforms nor showers, the men left for home in the same filthy clothing that they had worked all day in. Because of that, they couldn't ride in cars, and they couldn't take public transportation. And so they walked home, whatever the weather. They'd walk home to where they could wait on the porch, where family members would spray them down and pull maggots out of their hair. No one knows exactly how Robert Walker and Echo Cole were pulled into the trash compactor that day. The most likely account is that after dumping the trash into the back of the truck, 
They sought shelter from the rain and they climbed in as well. But somehow the internal wires, perhaps short-circuited, starting the compactor with the men inside. But as Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson tell it in their excellent book, Reparations, these are simply speculations. So much about that day was, as the witness said, simply swallowed. Their deaths happened nearly four years after after President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and almost 200 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which said famously, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Their deaths and the conditions that led to them kicked off a sanitation workers' strike there in Memphis. The strike started successfully with thousands walking off the job, as well as a several hundred person sit-in. And this did lead the city council to acknowledge the workers' union and support raises. The mayor, however, refused these concessions. And on February 23, 1968, police confronted peaceful protesters with tear gas. Does that sound familiar? This led local civil rights leaders to reach out to Martin Luther King Jr. to lend his voice to their cause. And of course, as we recall, it was there in Memphis on April 4 of that year that he was assassinated and he too gave his life. In a speech a couple of weeks earlier on March 18 in Memphis, King emphasized that all labor has dignity. He said, and I'm quoting at length here, you are doing many things here in this struggle. You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. You're here tonight to demand that Memphis will do something about the conditions of our, that our brothers face as they work day in and day out for the well-being of the total community. You're here to demand that Memphis will see the poor. And I come by here to say that America, too, is going to hell if she doesn't use her wealth. If America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all of God's children to have the basic necessities of life, she, too, will go to hell. And I will hear America, through her historians, years and generations to come, saying, we built gigantic buildings to kiss the sky. We built gargantuan bridges to span the seas. Through our spaceships, we were able to carve highways through the stratosphere. Through our airplanes, we were able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. It seems, Martin says, that I can hear the God of the universe saying, even though you've done all of that, I was hungry and you fed me not. I was naked, and you clothed me not. The children of my sons and daughters were in need of economic security, and you didn't provide it for them. And so you cannot enter the kingdom of greatness. This may well be the indictment on America, and the same voice 
says in Memphis to the mayor, to the power structure, if you do it under the, under the least of these, my children, you do it unto me. He continues, now our struggle is for genuine equality, which means economic equality. For we know now that it isn't enough to integrate lunch counters. What does it profit a man to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a cup of coffee? And so in Memphis, we have begun. We are saying now is the time. And then he says, now let me say a word to those of you who are on strike. Don't go back to the job until the demands are met. Never forget that freedom is not something that is given voluntarily by the oppressor. Freedom is not some lavish dish that the power structure and the white forces and policy-making positions will hand out on a silver platter. If we are going to get equality, if we're going to get adequate wages, if we're going to get what we need, we are going to have to struggle for it. End extended quote. Did you hear what he said? Freedom must be demanded by the oppressed. The thick irony is that too often it is those who already have power and privilege who are the quickest to cry, but freedom! And usually what they mean is they have no interest in sharing such freedom with those who are different from them. But more on that a little later. You might say, what does adequate pay and safe working conditions have to do with freedom? political philosopher and Holocaust survivor Hannah Arendt said that to be human and to be free are one and the same. To be human and to be free are one and the same. King agreed with her. She also asserted, like the founding fathers, that all humans are born free. Freedom is our natural state. But when we deny it, but we end up denying it to one another, through our systems and structures that prevent, limit, or keep access to such freedom from certain people. And so what does adequate pay and working conditions have to do with freedom? If conditions are such that you cannot even put a roof over your head or put food on the table, you are not free. If your work environment is inherently unsafe, you are not free. Paul wrote to the Galatians, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And you heard them there, him talking about circumcision. And he's arguing against what some scholars call maybe a straw man, perhaps not an entirely accurate understanding of Judaism, in which people, in Paul's view, earn their place among the people of God by the practice of circumcision. But setting aside that argument, he does rightly note that Christ came to set us free from whatever is binding us. 
Jesus reminds us that we are all free, freely accepted and loved by God through no action or effort of our own. So there is spiritual freedom and there is political freedom. The Apostle Paul and Hannah Arendt and Martin Luther King Jr. would call spiritual freedom our natural state. But political freedom is our ability to act freely in the world that we live in. And King and Arendt agree that this freedom cannot simply be an idea. You have to be able to practice freedom, enact freedom, live in that freedom for it to be real. And so for King, freedom included tearing down whatever prevented that freedom, barriers to education and opportunity, whatever might block our pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Freedom in King's mind is brotherhood, peace and racial harmony. Freedom is equality. And whenever there is inequality and inequity, it is usually those who are in the position of power and privilege who are the ones standing in the way. For example, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what that act had done was ensure that states couldn't pass laws that would make it harder for people to vote on their own without approval of the federal government. But once that was struck down in 2013, immediately after that, wave after wave of Republican lawmakers in states like Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and North Carolina, among others, moved to enact new voter ID laws and other restrictions, some of which were said to target African-Americans with surgical-like precision. Between 2012 and 2018, there were 1,688 polling places closed in states previously covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And then, in 2021, the Supreme Court dealt another blow to the critical protections provided in the Voting Rights Act, what was left of it. And this basically opened the door wide open to discriminatory voting laws. The rest of that year, this is not ancient history, friends, 2021. The rest of that year, more than 400 anti-voter measures were introduced by states across the country, which disproportionately burdened people of color. This country's long, long prided itself on freedom. It was founded on freedom from tyranny and has created a society in which many, including many of us, have experienced abundant blessings. But as the old saying goes, freedom isn't free. Too often, one's freedom is coming at the expense of someone else's. For example, we often think of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation as a great moment for freedom in the history of this country. And it was. And it was. 
But there was something else happening at that time which I was unaware of, in which Laylee Longsoldier eloquently and starkly tells of in her book of poetry, Whereas, in a poem entitled 38, and it's a poem I commend to you to read and sit with in its entirety, and then read again. Here is just a piece of it. She writes, and I am quoting her at length, she says, you may or may not have heard about the Dakota 38. The Dakota 38 refers to 38 Dakota men who were executed by hanging under orders from President Abraham Lincoln. Today, this is the largest, quote, legal mass execution in U.S. history. This hanging took place on December 26, 1862, the day after Christmas. This was the same week that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. In the preceding sentence, I italicize same week for emphasis. There was a movie entitled Lincoln about the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. The signing of the Emancipa Emancipation Proclamation was included in the film Lincoln. The hanging of the Dakota 38 was not. In any case, you may be asking, why were 38 Dakota men hung? They were hanged for the Sioux Uprising. Before Minnesota became a state, it was the traditional homeland for the Dakota, the Anishinaabeg, and the Ho-Chunk people. During the 1800s, when the U.S. expanded territory, they, quote, purchased land from the Dakota people as well as other tribes. Another way to understand that sort of, quote, purchase is Dakota leaders ceded land to the U.S. government in exchange for money or goods, but most importantly, for the safety of their people. Some say that the Dakota leaders did not understand the terms they were entering, or they never would have agreed to it. Even others call the entire negotiation trickery. But to make whatever it was official and binding, the U.S. government drew up an initial treaty. That treaty was later replaced by another, more convenient treaty. And then another. These amended and broken treaties are often referred to as the Minnesota Treaties. The word Minnesota comes from minit, meaning water, and soda, which means turbid. Synonyms for turbid include muddy, unclear, cloudy, confused, and smoky. Everything is in the language we use. The U.S. treaties with the Dakota Nation were legal contracts that promised money. It could be said this money was payment for the land the Dakota ceded for living within assigned boundaries, a reservation, and for relinquishing rights to their vast hunting territory, which in turn made the Dakota people dependent on other means to survive money. 
The previous sentence is circular, akin to so many aspects of history. As you may have guessed by now, the money promised in the turbid treaties did not make it into the hands of the Dakota people. In addition, local government traders would not offer credit to, quote, Indians to purchase food or goods. Without money, without store credit, and without rights to hunt beyond their 10-mile tract of land, Dakota people began to starve. The Dakota people were starving. The Dakota people starved. In the preceding sentence, the word starved does not need italics for emphasis. One should read the, the Dakota people starved as a straightforward and plainly stated fact. <clears throat> as a result, and what, without other options but to continue to starve, the Dakota people retaliated. Dakota warriors organized, struck out, and killed settlers and traders. This revolt is called the Sioux Uprising. Eventually, the U.S. Cavalry came to Minnesota to confront the uprising. More than 1,000 Dakota men were sent to prison. As already mentioned, 38 Dakota men were subsequently hanged. As a further consequence, what remained of Dakota territory in Minnesota was dissolved. Parentheses, stolen. The Dakota people had no land to return to. I'll stop reading the poem from there. But I highlight this because it was happening at the same time as one of the great moments of freedom that we celebrate in this nation, the Emancipation Proclamation. And the truth is, we don't like to tell stories that highlight the underside of American freedom. But we cannot ignore our history if we're to understand where we are today. And so we must be clear that when those who are already in a position of power and privilege, particularly because of their gender, race, skin color, and orientation, such folks should be the last to complain about a lack of freedom. When elected officials expressly make it more difficult for people of color and historically marginalized folks to vote, they are opposed to freedom. When folks fly Confederate flags, and show up at our nation's capital with the express goal of overthrowing the results of a freely held democratic election, they are blocking and shutting down freedom. When local libraries are forbidden from carrying books that celebrate and normalize LGBTQ plus stories and experiences, that isn't freedom. And when folks in a 92% white county dissolve an office that exists solely for the, the reason to support diversity, equity, and inclusion, they are not working for freedom. Yes. 
no matter what slogan they put on it. And yet, why do such folks often yell freedom the loudest? Usually it's because they are subscribing to a purely individual rights notion of freedom. In other words, any infringement on my personal liberty is an attack on freedom and must be opposed. But here's the thing. According to Amanda Tyler of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, that notion of freedom does not work in a large and pluralistic society like the one we live in. The better path, she says, is an understanding of freedom that takes into account the rights of everyone in our society and nation. Author Maggie Nelson writes that our entire existence, including our freedoms, is built on a we, not an I. This we version of freedom understands the need to protect individual rights as much as we can while recognizing there's a limit when protecting one person's freedom starts to infringe on someone else's. What did Paul say to the Galatians? Do not use your freedom to indulge yourself. Use it to serve others in love. The whole summary and point of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. So according to the Bible, the point of freedom is to serve others, not yourself. Jesus didn't tell us that our first priority was to, quote, claim our rights. He laid down his rights and his life for the good of others. He calls us to do the same. And so when we don't celebrate the vast diversity of people that God has made, freedom doesn't reign. When we're scared of and make life harder for our neighbors because of the color of their skin or who they love, freedom doesn't reign. When we ban books that could expand our understanding of each other, freedom doesn't reign. When we yell freedom while denying it to others, freedom doesn't reign. When we build bigger walls and close our borders to immigrants and refugees, freedom doesn't ring. And when we work to subvert democracy instead of upholding it, freedom doesn't ring. Freedom rings when we open our hearts to one another. Freedom rings when we're willing to learn from those who are different than ourselves. Freedom rings when we're willing to take a hard look at our history instead of whitewashing it. Freedom rings when we make it easier for every citizen to vote. Freedom rings when we work to make life better for all our neighbors. Freedom rings when we recognize and understand our privilege and are willing to lay it aside. Freedom reigns when we acknowledge that our religious tradition is but one of many and that all should be honored and valued. Freedom reigns when we stop yelling the word freedom and do the hard work that freedom requires. Martin Luther King Jr., who gave his life for the cause of freedom, 
said it this way. There is nothing greater in all the world than freedom. It's worth going to jail for. It's worth losing your job for. It's worth dying for. So my friends, go out this evening determined to achieve the freedom that God desires for all her children. Amen. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.